You are now listening to Macro Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Macrodose, your weekly fix of everything economics. My name is Dahlia Gabriel. I'm a lecturer at King's College London and co-host of Navara Live at Navara Media. Before we get started with today's show, here's a quick voice note from James with an update on his whereabouts. Hi, everyone. James here. I wanted to let you all know that Eva and I have just welcomed our baby, Leo, into our lives, so I'll be taking a break from the show for a month or so. In the meantime, we have an exciting lineup of guest hosts each week, and I'll be back here with the exhausted vocals of a new father very shortly. As always, thank you so much for supporting the show, and especially to our faithful Patreon subscribers. See you all soon. Congratulations, James. If you are half a good a father as you are a podcast host, then you've got nothing to worry about. On today's show, I'm going to talk about a part of the economy that has, in a very short space of time, become a ubiquitous part of our daily lives. The platform economy, also known as the gig economy. How did companies like Uber and Deliveroo become such a fundamental part of everyday life in cities like London? And what can the logic behind these companies tell us about the future of modern capitalism? As always, a big thank you to those of you who support Macrodose over at patreon.com. If you enjoy the show and have the means, do consider becoming a subscriber today. You can find all the show's latest content, including The Fix, which is Macrodose's monthly newsletter, and James's regular Q&A videos over at patreon.com forward slash macrodose. A couple of years ago, I was travelling to New York for the first time. 20 minutes into the tube journey from Finsbury Park to Heathrow Terminal 5, I noticed an advert for on-demand childcare platform Bubble. Flexible childcare, it said, that lets you be all you need to be. Around 10 hours later, I was walking out of JFK Airport, and the first thing I see is a screen humming with orange brightness against the black of a winter night. And it said, Postmates, we get it. On-demand apps are embedding themselves into the fabric of our cities. What it means for urban professional middle classes to, quote, be all you need to be, is increasingly defined by expectations that you can get whatever you want at the click of a button. As urban economies further polarise, Low-wage, racialized, and often migrant workers are recruited via platforms into fulfilling these expectations of on-demand services. This gig economy has, in the space of about 10 years, gone from being a relatively experimental idea to something that is increasingly permeating every part of our daily lives. In Britain, one in six of us currently work in the gig economy at least once a week, and many more of us will work in it at some point in our lives. We also use the gig economy a lot to do an increasing number of things, to get food, to get a taxi, even to find someone to look after our child or walk our dog. And with this, a particular logic is embedding itself in more and more parts of our life and our society. The logic of the on-demand city. Yet the speed with which this is happening means we rarely have the chance to reflect on what this means for our economy, our well-being, and the way we relate to one another. 
on whether this is something that we actually want. So what do we mean when we talk about the gig economy? Now, the gig economy isn't just about being on insecure contracts or being paid piecemeal for gigs or tasks. That's existed for a really long time. What we typically mean when we refer to the gig economy is more accurately called the platform economy because it involves these piecemeal jobs and tasks being organised via platforms or apps. Here, the work of matching customers and workers, as well as management processes like supervision or performance review or auditing, are done by algorithmic technologies rather than human supervisors. And this allows everything to happen at a much larger scale, at low cost for the company and with very little accountability. In other words, this is the realisation of a long-held neoliberal dream. It also allows platforms to make the promise that is so appealing to many of us. The promise that we can have whatever we want, whenever and wherever we want it, on demand. But what are the real costs of this slick platform promise? Who is losing out? Why and how? And what explains its meteoric rise? In the wake of the 2008 financial crash, Platforms were popularised amongst financial and political elites as a quick-fix solution to the multi-layered crisis. To investors and venture capitalists, it promised fresh sites of low-investment capital accumulation. To high-level politicians trying to promote austerity, it promised a cheap and efficient way of replacing and outsourcing infrastructural service provision – one that uses existing resources and absolves government from direct responsibility of providing services like childcare and decent transportation. Even to workers, platform companies promised an easy way of earning money without having to invest too much money or time. And you can be your own boss. Many had just lost their jobs due to the spectacular failure of mainstream employers, But through the platform economy, you didn't have to rely on institutions that had shown themselves to be fragile. And of course, people who are scrambling to survive are often willing to try anything that might provide a solution. And finally, to everyone else, platforms promise the delivery of cheap service work on demand and delivered to your door. By making this series of promises, platforms could position themselves as a kind of techno-fix, whereby complex and seemingly unsolvable social, political or economic problems are given quick-fix technical solutions, even if those problems were actually rooted in deep structural and material conflicts. We didn't have to reckon with the fact that the 2008 collapse was an inevitable result of the boom-bust cycle underpinning capitalism, which has been made even more volatile by neoliberal deregulation, or the fact an increasing number of our essential services have been privatised and turned into casinos for the ultra-rich. No, because these new shiny things called platforms and big data and smart cities have come along, And they're going to fix everything from unemployment to the big bad deficit. The answers don't lie in the mass movements that swelled in response to 2008, who called for the systemic changes that we need to prevent this catastrophe from happening again. No, of course not. The answers instead lay with the ingenuity of a select few rich men from Silicon Valley. 
they knew better than the rest of us. Are you dealing with the worst economic downfall since the Great Depression? Well, there's an app for that. In short, politicians and investors believed these promises. As a result, platforms enjoyed rapid uptake by those in power. Platforms could therefore rapidly cannibalise entire sectors of the economy with little oversight or time for regulation to catch up. The most famous one, of course, is Uber. Uber employed its first person in 2010. In just over 10 years, it has amassed over 131 million monthly users and it facilitates over 25 million trips per day in around 10,000 cities worldwide. That kind of scale is unprecedented. For a company to have that kind of geographic spread to become an essential global infrastructural actor in such a short space of time is almost unheard of. And that power is why, despite not turning a profit until last year, it is still considered a successful company, with many other companies vying to become the next Uber of whatever sector you might think of. If a company can promise to investors that one day it will be impossible to imagine life without their product, that's a pretty appealing sell, because if and when it eventually does become profitable, it will be a secure and significant return on investment. Or if the app you invest in gets sold to a bigger actor like Google, you don't even have to wait for it to become profitable. And that's always been the benefit of investing in something infrastructural. You can yield a steady profit over time because people will always need or use what you own. And yet this platform model of infrastructure is very different to those of the past because you don't have to build and own fixed capital assets that yield this profit over time. You don't have to invest significant amounts of startup capital in building durable infrastructures to invest in things like buildings, factories, or even your own workers. Instead, you just need to invest in the platform and the platform's promise. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And when it does fail, as most do, the company can fold having lost relatively little and leaving barely anything to show for it. Unlike historic fixes to capitalist crisis, platforms do not involve building durable infrastructures that can be repurposed or are usable in other ways. A platform investor's portfolio is typically high volume, low cost, i.e. a little is given to loads of companies with the exception that 99.9% of them will come to nothing, but one will be the next unicorn. And that is what we mean when we talk about a particular platform logic being increasingly embedded in our lives. It's a logic of speculation, volatility and transience, one that favours speed and a performance of ease and convenience over intentional planning that responds to actual needs. When it comes to the shape of our cities, this approach is not sustainable. It comes with an absence of planning and sensitivity to local contexts, to building cohesive, resilient infrastructures that are truly geared towards local needs. When it comes to the state of workers' rights, 
The damage of this low-cost, ephemeral and volatile approach is well documented. In fact, despite how they are described in investor circles, platforms are not actually low-cost or low-investment. Rather, they simply shift the cost. It's devolved away from the investor and onto the worker, and even sometimes onto the customer. Workers pay in all kinds of ways to make this model work. They pay financially, mentally, physically. They take on debt to pay for the car or the bike they use to deliver things on demand. They invest time looking for work and being on standby for gigs as and when they come through. Time that isn't paid because they don't receive a salary. They also invest time curating profiles and managing clients in ways that provide the seamless, frictionless service provision that the platform has promised to the customer. They pay with their physical and mental health, trying to cram as many jobs into a day as possible, as they're pushed to work longer for less pay. Yet, unlike standard employees, they receive very little in return for this in the way of wages or basic workers' rights. When things go wrong, as they inevitably do, it's typically easier for the platform to just suspend or fire the worker and replace them than to go through the costly process of figuring out what actually happened. They can do this because platforms infamously do not classify their workers as employees, but as self-employed independent contractors. This allows platforms to easily hire and fire their workers according to the platform's needs, rather than to take responsibility for the workers that make their model function. When customers are disappointed by a platform's service for whatever reason, maybe traffic means something doesn't arrive on time, the worker bears the brunt of this in the form of a low rating or even abuse from customers. This logic of transience, disposability and the shirking of responsibility does not just apply to the infrastructures platforms promise to create. It also applies to how platforms think about their own workers and how they encourage everyone else to think of their workers too. I'm going to end with an anecdote that I think summarises how the platform logic is changing how we relate to one another. On the 24th of February, 2023, Mohammed, a delivery worker, collapsed. He had been delivering food to the residents of Maranti House, which is a luxury block of flats standing in the London borough of Tower Hamlets, which is also the poorest borough in London. He fell at the building's doors just a 13-minute walk from the Thai restaurant where customers had placed their order shortly before. Passers-by crowded around the scene, bargaining with the concierge to let them carry his body off the wet pavement and into the lobby, which they refused. As the small but animated crowd deliberated on what to do, Muhammad's phone, which lay next to him, was pinging and flashing. Sensing that he had not moved in a while, Deliveroo's algorithm was nudging him to hurry up and complete the delivery. Two people came out of their apartment, into the lobby, and stepped over Muhammad's body to retrieve their order. They returned a few moments later to complain an item was missing. A week after this happened, I stood in Altab Ali Park, where a protest was being held by the ADCU, the App-Based Drivers and Couriers Union. 
The park is just a few metres from Moranti House, where one-bedroom flats go for just under £1 million. While I was at the demonstration, I pictured Mohammed's head on the cold concrete, hearing Deliveroo's notification sound as he drifted in and out of consciousness. I thought about how that irritating jingle has become a staple of London's background noise. I thought about how those two customers did not see Mohammed as a full human being, but as little more than a vehicle, as part of the machine they had used to order their food. Mohammed's story illustrates the human cost of an app-based city. It demonstrates how platforms cultivate expectations of particular spatial and temporal possibilities. What you want, where you want, when you want it at the cost of workers' rights and at the cost of creating a functional, sustainable city. The slick, clean surface of the interface conceals a volatile network of fatigued bodies and frantic minds of struggle, conflict and dysfunction as people try to keep up with the promises platforms make but do not invest in or take responsibility for. Underpinning the appearance of smooth operation is a messy web of struggling workers and broken urban services. The fact those workers are typically from racialized minorities means that because of the broader impact of social racism, we are primed to not see the pain and loss they experience trying to keep up with a model that gives them so little in return for their sweat. Platforms do not reduce cost. They shift it to those who have the fewest resources to pay that cost. So if the platform fix that we've been clinging onto since 2008 sounds like it's too good to be true, that's because it is. Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose.